Welcome to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Each weekday, Dr. Crisp will be discussing biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Tune in daily to start your day right and deepen your understanding of how to better walk the way and enjoy the journey. Here's your host, Dr. Tony Crisp. Welcome to On the Way. This is Tony Crisp, and this is the 365 Bible Reading Plan. Today is September the 11th, and our chapter for today is the book of Acts chapter 21. I know, I know we have skipped over so much from chapter 18 into 19 and 20. Let me summarize. The high points are that at Corinth, God spoke to Paul in an unusual way and changed his methodology, his message emphasis for the rest of his life. Wherever Paul went, he stressed the substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Like at no other time before in his ministry, he had always been a strong proponent of preaching the good news, which I just spoke to you. But he had tried to, what I would call, get sophisticated and relate to the people in Athens, the academics, and he found out that that accomplished very little. Now, does that mean that we don't need to relate to academics? Absolutely not. We do. But the reality is, if someone is just looking for something new, something novel, something that they can argue and debate about, there is no way that that is going to determine, even if they agree down to every point with you, that what you're saying is true. It does not mean that they will receive it, that is, accept it, commit to it as truth, because you see, a fool is someone who continues to believe something that is false, something that is inaccurate, in spite of all the facts. Paul laid out very clearly the message of Jesus and who he is, that he is the unknown God that they had reference to, but no one really came to follow him. Oh, some believe, but you don't record at all of any being baptized in Athens, of a church being started there, of anything like that. And the reason is, the more knowledge a person has of this world, it seems like they have to come to a point of desperation before they will receive the truth of God's Word because people are what we would call in the South struck on themselves. They can strut sitting down. And if you believe that there is pride in any area of life, all you have to do is go to the halls of academia, go to the Ivy League schools, go to the universities of your city, of your state, and you will see that people have a sense of affluence, a sense of academics, a sense of pride of their knowledge and what they know to the point to where it is sickening. And so this is what Paul ran up against at Athens. And when he came to Corinth, he determined that he would preach Jesus and him crucified. Whatever it was that he was preaching about, he knew that it was the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. It was there in chapter 18 that he met Apollos who became a mighty, mighty apologist for the message of the cross. He knew the Old Testament scriptures, the Tanakh, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he became a great defender of the faith, expounded the scriptures publicly, 
And he showed over and over again from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. After all, this is the pattern that Jesus himself used in talking with the disciples so that they would understand how to do it. Paul and Aquila and Priscilla had a great opportunity to learn to do that at the feet of the Apostle Paul, who had learned that at the feet of Jesus himself in Arabia for three years. And that's by Paul's own testimony. At Ephesus, great miracles were done. What a revival, what a renewal, what an evangelistic thrust there was at Ephesus. You can read about it in chapter 19. There were so many miracles. It says in verse 11, now God worked unusual miracles. And when God says unusual miracles, that's an amazing thing because miracle is an unusual thing. But these were unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Listen to this, so that even handkerchiefs, aprons uh, were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Does that mean that those were holy garments? Does that mean that they were holy handkerchiefs and that we can produce that today on some TV show or in some tent somewhere? Not necessarily. Because it was not that these things were sacred. It was the power of God that bred faith and uh, trust and commitment to God in trusting him for healing. And that's what happened. Demons were cast out. And you read about that. There was a great ride at Ephesus and the Apostle Paul left Ephesus. Then he came to Macedonia. And as you know, after all the days of ministering in Macedonia, he left. He went to Miletus in chapter 20. He met the uh, elders at Miletus. And I would just say one thing to you. In chapter 20, you want to go back and read from verses 17 through the end of the chapter. Because what I want you to see in that series of verses is it says from Miletus, which was the port city of Ephesus, because at Ephesus, the water used to come all the way up to Ephesus, and there was a a port there. Uh, But because of the silt of the meandering river from the ocean itself, it filled up. And so it was a good ways, uh, several miles down to the shoreline. And so Paul landed at Miletus and sent to Ephesus and called for the elders. Now that's the presbyteroi. Presbyteros is one, presbyteroi, multiple. Elders, the word is the word Presbyterian, where we get our word Presbyterian. It's the word for elder. And the reason the Presbyterians are called the Presbyterians is because elders rule. They don't just lead, they rule in uh, the Presbyterian church. And it's a different kind of thing than what you would see in many evangelical churches, as in elder-led Baptist churches or Calvary Chapel or some other evangelical church, a Bible church. There's different kinds of elder-led, elder roof, but this is the most common word for the position that most call a senior pastor or a pastor. And then in verse 28, it says, therefore, take heed to yourselves. He's talking to the elders, and this is the apostle Paul before he left them. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopoi. That's where we get our word episkopos. Epi is the preposition, which means over or above. And and in this case, it's the idea of over. And then the word skopos, which is the word for sight. So oversight or overseeing something, a skopos, what you put on a rifle uh, to look through, to see through, to draw something up. A micros skopos is a microscope, something that makes where you can see little things, a 
Telos scopas is something you can see from a great distance. Telos means the end or the completion, and you bring it back to where you are. And so that is where we get the word telescope. So episkopos is the word which means to give oversight, to be an overseer in that particular form. To shepherd the church of God. And the word shepherd is usually in the verb form because it's based around what you do. It's the idea of feeding a flock. That's the number one priority. The shepherd is find food for the flock. And in doing that, that's the best way he gives care. We have the wrong idea primarily of a shepherd that his primary responsibility is to care for. That's like tend to the sheep, this, that. No, his primary responsibility uh, for those uh, sheep to live is to find food and water for them. And if they're healthy, there's going to be less, quote, care for them, end quote. And so, the, what I want you to see is that all of these words are used interchangeably, elder, presbyteros, overseer, episkopos, and shepherd, poimain, is the, or poima, that is the word for shepherd, and they're all used interchangeably. In other words, these are not three offices. They are three functions, three job descriptions of the same office. Now, this is very important in our culture that is so mixed up. And you say, well, I don't think that works. Well, you don't get a vote on it because, you see, God's the one that set this up, and he knows it works. And just because uh, human beings are faulty and people don't follow through with what they should and there's not the accountability and responsibility and balance and checks that there need to be. And because of the abuse that this has brought, because of sinful men, uh, that doesn't mean you throw out the baby with the bathwater. But I want you to look at that and you'll see these words are used interchangeably. Now, there's no argument about that. There's really not from a linguistic standpoint because the words are used interchangeably, period. And then in 21, It says, now, it came to pass when Paul had departed from them that they set sail, that is, from Ephesus, from Miletus, where he was. All you have to do is follow the map here, because if you've ever been, as I have, through those Greek islands there, on your way down from Ephesus, I followed this very route, coming right by coast, down to the island. You can go to Crete this way. You can do exactly what it says and go right by Rhodes and go to Patara, which is on the Turkish coast uh, from the mainland. And they finding a ship went over to Phoenicia. Now, that's over in uh, what we would call uh, Lebanon and uh, the Syrian area today. And it says we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. Why? Because they were north of that, and they followed the line between Turkey and Cyprus. I've stood on Cyprus and could see the coastal mainland of Turkey in the distance to the north, over on the Turkish side of Cyprus in modern-day Cyprus. So it is uh, Paul could see Cyprus on the right. They passed to the left of Cyprus. As you're looking at it straight down, they went that way. And it says they sailed to Syria. They landed in Tyre or Tyre. For there the ship was unload, uh, unladen her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They stayed a full week there. They needed to rest up from the journey. That was a very difficult journey. They need to get their land legs again. And they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we, see, notice all these we's. This is Luke talking about all this. When we'd come to the end of the days, we departed, went on our way, and they all accompanied us, all of the people that they'd been staying with, with their wives, their children, till we got out of the city, and they knelt down on the shore and prayed, and when we'd taken our leave from one another, we boarded ship, 
and they returned home. And uh, when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, they came to Ptolemy, which is what is called Akko today. It is just across the harbor from modern-day Haifa. It is north of Haifa, across the harbor. You can see it. It was really made famous during the days of the Crusaders. But as you can see, the Apostle Paul came there as well. It's been called Acre, A-C-R-E, Akko, as it is today, A-K-K-O. But here it was called Ptolemy. And uh, that was, of course, after one of the generals of Alexander the Great. And so it says we came to Ptolemy. And when we did, we greeted the brethren and stayed with them one day. On the next day, boy, isn't this wonderful just getting a a journal of the journeys of the Apostle Paul. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions, that is Luke and all the rest of them, departed and came to Caesarea. That's Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritime, not Philippi to the north at Mount Hermon. This is Caesarea by the sea, which was the capital of Judea, and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip the evangelist. You say, well, is that different from Philip the disciple? Yes. And he is named here. He was one of the seven. Well, I thought there were 12. There were 12, but there were seven that were set aside in Acts chapter 6 to be special table servants, what we would call diakonos or deacons. And that was uh, one of them was Philip. He was one of the seven. Now, that refers back to Acts chapter 6. And uh, we stayed with him, and this man had four virgin daughters. You say, what does that word virgin mean? Same thing it means today. They hadn't had sex with any man. Now, this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. You say, well, now, tell me how to get around the fact that this was women preaching. Because that's what the word prophecy means here, if that's what it means in other places, like in Ephesus, uh, when Apollos uh, preached to the people, and after they became followers of Jesus, they had been followers of John the Baptist, and just like with other instances, they were filled with the Holy Spirit after they were baptized, and they began to speak with other tongues and prophesy. That meant they were preaching. You say, well, what were these women, these virgins doing? preaching. You say, well, I don't believe in that. Again, this doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe. God says these women were preaching. Now, it doesn't say they were pastoring. It doesn't say they were waxing eloquent in a local church, but they were preaching. They were preaching, proclaiming the Word of God. The Word is the same word for preaching that I do each Sunday morning, each Sunday night, each Wednesday night, throughout the week, every day. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching to an audience that uh, right now covers 61 nations, 2,200 cities worldwide that are listening to this podcast or have listened to it at some point or are presently listening to it. I'm preaching. I'm teaching. Whatever you want to call it, I'm proclaiming the truths of God's Word. This is what the women were doing. Now, don't, again, throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't like this in the evangelical world. We say, oh, well, this is just opening the door. I'm not opening the door of anything but the Word of God. Now, the Word of God says that Philip's daughters prophesied, and there's no amount of linguistic gymnastics that will get us away from that. And so that's what it says, accept it. You say, well, I just don't believe there needs to be women preachers. Well, take it up with the Lord. Because I want to tell you, this doesn't get into all the stuff about the local assembly and this, that, and other. But I can tell you, these women were preaching. Whether you like it, I like it, doesn't matter. 
because God allowed it to happen. He anointed these ladies. Uh, Paul didn't rebuke them. Their daddy, uh, Philip, didn't rebuke them. So I think it was okay. That's just based upon my reading of the Scripture. So we move on. Now, there was a certain prophet named Agabus who came down from Judea. He came down to the coast. That's what that means because Judea, most of it is up in the Shephelah, the foothills, or up on the ridge. It's in the mountains, so to speak. And all of that is called Judea. And this was the capital of Judea, the Roman province of Judea, during the days of the first century. And so he came down, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard, this is we, Luke, that's all of his companions, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place, from Caesarea, pleaded with him, with who? With Paul, not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? This is an amazing statement. Paul said, oh, what are you doing? You're, you're killing me. You're crying and squalling and going on. You're breaking my heart. Now, it, it sounds sarcastic. I don't think it was, but Paul had a streak in him from time to time. And so he said, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm not only ready to go bound, but also to die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus, he had lived his life. He knew what he was doing. He was seeking after God. He was bound in his spirit to go. So verse 14 says, so when he would not be persuaded, we ceased. In other words, Luke said, we just stopped talking. There wasn't any sense. He had his mind made up. And when Paul has his mind made up, that's what he's going to do. Then they just said, well, the will of the Lord be done. And that's what we have to do. We have to trust God with people. We have to trust God with our lives. We have to trust God with the message that we preach. Paul followed through. He went to the elders in Jerusalem. When he went to the elders in Jerusalem, they said, hey, there's a lot of rumors going on about you that not about the Gentiles. You know, let's let's put them aside. We've already made a ruling on that and what's recorded in Acts chapter 15. But now, Paul, people are saying things about you, saying that you're no longer a Jew, that you're this, that, and the other. And we suggest that what you do is do what any Jew would do and show them that you're still Jewish and take a vow and go into the temple and pay for some others to take a vow. And so he did exactly what the elders in Jerusalem asked him to do. Does that mean he's any less than them? No. When you submit to authority, when you submit to what a group of godly men say to do, that doesn't make you less. Men, that makes you more. You see, by submitting, he fell right in line with the will and the way of God. And so you can begin reading in verse 26 how he went in the temple and sure enough, they stirred up against him all kinds of things. And they had to come in from the Antonio Fortress, from the garrison, it's called. And they had to rescue Paul. And it's funny in verse 37, then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, that is into the Antonio Fortress, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? <laughs> he said that in Greek. And he replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago started up the rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? But Paul said, I am a Jew from Tarsus 
in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I'll tell you, I cannot express to you what this did to this Roman captain, because he had no doubt heard and knew of Cilicia, which was a tremendous province in the Roman Empire, did a lot of business with the Roman government, with Caesar himself, and he was a citizen of Tarsus, which was not an insignificant city. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. And he said, I implore you, permit me to speak. And when he had given him permission, I bet he did. Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. So see, Paul was in the temple there, speaking Aramaic in the environs of the temple, and so they ran against him, and he spoke Greek fluently to the captain, and then when he turned to the people who were the religious leaders, he spoke to them in fluent Hebrew. No doubt he was fluent in Latin as well. He was a learned man. I have people in Israel that I know that have guided for me that can guide in seven languages. I mean, guide in seven languages. That means they're fluent in seven languages. We as Americans think that English is the language of heaven. It's not. When we find Jesus speaking from heaven, when we hear the voice of God from heaven, he's speaking in Hebrew. You say again, well, you know, I just don't know about it. doesn't matter. That's what the Bible says. And so you look it up and you'll see Jesus spoke to Saul of Tarsus in the Hebrew language on the road to Damascus. So I see, oh my goodness, my time is way past 20 minutes. I am going too long. May the Lord bless you as you read through this. When we get into the next chapter, chapter 22, we're going to look at Paul and his defense how he strategically divided the Sanhedrin. So I pray this has been a blessing to you as you walk on the way. This is Tony Crisp. Thanks for listening to On the Way with Tony Crisp. Tune in every weekday for information on biblical passages, people, places, and prophecies. Fridays are for your questions. Email your questions to questions at tonycrisp.org. Then just listen for your question to be answered on Friday's podcast. That's questions at TonyCRISP.org. Thanks for listening and have a blessed day on the way.